It's looking like the rule is now, if you get sued for defamation, go to trial and lose, your next move is probably to file for bankruptcy. On today's episode, we look at why that is, what this means for bankruptcy law, and what it means for the First Amendment. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. So the other day, I was reading a story by my colleague James Nanny about the former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani having to declare personal bankruptcy after losing a $148 million defamation trial. And in James' story, one particular quote stuck out to me. Rudy Giuliani's filing is just the latest in a defamation to bankruptcy pipeline. Because think about it, Giuliani isn't the first person to do this. There was also the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, and perhaps less famously, the entertainment blogger Latasha Kebe, who lost a defamation case against the rapper Cardi B. The person who coined that phrase, the defamation to bankruptcy pipeline, is our guest on today's podcast. He's Christopher Hampson, a bankruptcy law professor at the University of Florida. I called him up because I wanted to learn about the implications here, that losing a defamation trial now means you almost have to file for Chapter 11. Because regardless of how you feel about people like Rudy Giuliani or Alex Jones, and I don't blame anyone for having strong feelings about either of them, it seems like this could have much broader implications for the future of free speech and even potentially the free press. First, I asked Hampson to give me the messy details of some of the folks who've recently traversed the defamation to bankruptcy pipeline. In a number of those cases, shortly after a, a major verdict in the defamation case or after the plaintiff starts trying to seize assets, the defendant runs off to bankruptcy court um, and, and files a petition in bankruptcy. But I think it's becoming a standard play um, for a couple different reasons. Um, one of them, of course, is that bankruptcy puts an automatic stay down so that the plaintiffs have to stop all their collection action. So that means that, you know, the any litigation over the defamation claim just is, stops. It's frozen in its tracks while bankruptcy is ongoing. That's right. It, the, the litigation is frozen. Um, the bankruptcy judge, if, if there's more to do in, uh, you know, a state court case or a federal case, the bankruptcy judge will often lift the stay so that the parties can continue that litigation. Um, but more importantly, if the litigation's over and the, the plaintiffs have judgments against a defendant, they're going to go try and seize assets. They're going to go try and put a lien on a house or, or seize a car, get, grow, grab a bank account. And bankruptcy's automatic stay stops all of those actions, too. So before we get into the implications of this uh, and what this means for you know society and the law at large, why are defamation rulings so huge? I mean, it, it seems like when you hear about someone losing a defamation case at trial, they end up having to pay a lot of money. Why is that? You know, it's a great question. I think what's happening is in part the digital age. It's just easier for somebody to spread misinformation or a falsehood and have it go viral on social media or the internet and create a lot of damage. Um, and I think that goes in a couple different ways. I mean, in addition to people with kind of traditional large media outlets like Alex Jones um, or like Rudy Giuliani, who's a was America's mayor not so long ago, um, you know, you do have these YouTubers who can put something out there in a way that that gets the great Cardi B to think, you know, I've got to take this down. Um, this is a real problem for my business. And I'm not sure if that would have been true a generation or, or two ago. 
that's a really good point. Yeah, I guess you can't really do a whole lot of damage if you're like, you know, printing a hundred copies of a pamphlet that defames someone. If there's only a hundred copies that exist, like how much damage could be done? Whereas, you know, a tweet can go viral almost instantly. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I, at at a minimum. With traditional media, if if you're putting something out there, you're going to need some other player that's in the game. Maybe you publish something with the New York Times, or or, or you you publish something with Bloomberg, and and so. Traditionally, when people were sued, it was often the big traditional outlets with big pockets that were sued. Now, I think it's more common or more possible for someone to just you know they have their YouTube account, they have their Twitter account. Um, and they could be sued, and there's no one else in the game as a, a sort of partner in raising the defense. Let's get into the topic of dischargeability. I get the sense that, you know, this is a concept in bankruptcy law that states that, you know, certain debts can be discharged and certain debts can. Can you explain to me how that works when defamation is at play here or a defamation ruling, uh, and especially a defamation trial with a judgment? Uh, how, how does this all fit together? Right. You know, it's a great question, and it touches um, a lot of features of life that I think your listeners will be familiar with. A lot of people think about bankruptcy as a, as a kind of forgiveness, especially for individuals. Um, we, we talk about it in the business as a fresh start, a chance to kind of wipe your debts clean and start over. Really, from a lawyer's perspective, it's not nearly that simple, but the discharge is the closest thing to what we've got in this realm of forgiveness. It's a permanent order that the judge issues at the end of a case saying that the creditors can take no action to try and collect on this debt. Um, So that's what the discharge is. And individuals who file for bankruptcy uh, at the end of their case typically get a discharge of just about everything. But there are numerous exceptions to that. And they're found in the bankruptcy code. um, And some of the most important ones are criminal debt, fines and fees, child support, payments, um, student loans have a heightened standard. They're harder to get discharged in bankruptcy. And the big one for these purposes are um, debts arising out of a willful and malicious injury. Willful and malicious injury. That's really important because it sounds like uh, we spoke earlier and you mentioned that if you lose a defamation case and there's a judgment against you, it seems like most bankruptcy courts, most bankruptcy judges will consider that willful and malicious, which means it can't be discharged. Do, do I have that right? It depends on the nature of the underlying case. So there are fancy legal words for all this stuff, but sometimes a person's liable to someone else for something like an accident or they, they behaved irresponsibly, what, what we'd call that negligence or sometimes at a higher standard recklessness. Those kinds of mistakes are, are not going to rise to the level of willful and malicious. But if someone has an utter disregard for the truth or intentionally spreads lies about someone, and then you have this sizable damages judgment, that's probably not going to get forgiven in, in bankruptcy at all. And so that's what comes up for folks like Alex Jones or like Rudy Giuliani, where there are big punitive damages. The fact that those damages are punitive means that the jury thought they needed to be punished for misconduct. So by the time that gets to bankruptcy court, the bankruptcy judge is going to look at it and say, this looks like willful and malicious to me under our test. And not only that, there's a huge body of evidence that's been compiled in this other trial that it seems like the bankruptcy judge would be able to take a look at and, and, you know, 
that would be admissible, right, in bankruptcy court? That's right. Not just admissible, but in fact, um, the debtor in bankruptcy might not get a second bite at the apple. The way we refer to this rule is, is issue preclusion. And there are, you know, different pieces to it. But the basic idea is that if you've already litigated something in another court, and that court has already decided the matter, you don't get to run to another court and do it again. So Alex Jones faced this. Um, The Texas jury had awarded plaintiffs $49.3 million in damages against him, and then $1.5 billion in Connecticut. He filed for bankruptcy, and he asked a bankruptcy judge in Texas um, to rule that those debts could be discharged in his bankruptcy. And the judge said, look, I'm not working on a clean slate here. Um, We have these jury verdicts from Texas and Connecticut, and those verdicts tell us whether or not all this money was for a willful malicious injury. Okay, now let's take a step back and get into what all of this means. You know, given all of that and given what we just discussed about dischargeability, it seems like the stakes for a defamation case are extraordinarily high and the pressure for defendants to settle is also extraordinarily high. What do you think that means for the First Amendment and for society in general that you know, regardless of the facts of the case against you, it's almost always the right move to settle a defamation case rather than go to trial and try to win? Yeah, this is a really tough question. And I, you know, I think it affects not just defamation cases, but cases um, in general, there's almost always a lot of pressure to settle. I think here, um, yes, the risks are compounded. I mean, it's a it's a civil case, we think of that usually as a money judgment. But the fact that an adverse jury ruling could mean not just you owe millions of dollars, but you can't get rid of it in a bankruptcy, that makes it a lot weightier. I do think it puts pressure on defendants to settle. I was surprised that Jones and, and Giuliani decided to, um, to, to plow forward. Uh, but, but, you know, and I think, I think it's difficult. We're comp- increasingly occupying a space where more and more people have are, are sort of social media megaphones and can put content out there. Sure, every every person is a publisher unto themselves now. The, yeah, the, the, that's right. And so that it makes it easier for mistruths and partial information and other things to, to get spread around. And so, you know, on the one hand, we've got a concern that, you know, people who are, who are falsely accused, let's say, of defamation, who maybe should fight the good fight and go to trial, maybe they'll settle too early. Um, but on the other hand, it's, it's a world where it's very, very easy for misleading information or um, defamatory material to get out there. I mean, as they say, that what is it? A lie circles the globe 10 times before the truth has a chance to get out of bed. Yeah. Do you think that the code needs to change here or maybe should change a little bit uh, in, in that, you know, maybe there needs to be some leeway for cases involving the First Amendment uh, when it comes to bankruptcy, because I just have to imagine that if you're being sued in a defamation case or a First Amendment case and your lawyer tells you, you know, if you lose, you can't discharge this in bankruptcy. This debt is going to stay with you for the rest of your life, that that really has a chilling effect on the First Amendment and free speech. Um, What do you think about that? Am I kind of barking up the wrong tree here or, or is there something there? Well, there might be something there, yes. Um, so every state has these privacy torts, we call them, where you can hurt someone else by spreading a lie. And the First Amendment has a, an impact on what states can do. So 
Um, a famous case going back to 1964, New York Times versus Sullivan says that for public officials, um, a plaintiff's going to have to show uh, actual malice. Yeah, which is a very, very high standard. Right. It's a, it's a high standard. So the First Amendment makes it harder to get liability on some of these defamation or privacy. Um, what it doesn't do, and I, I haven't seen any, any case try to do it, is it, it, no one's thought through, as far as I know, whether the First Amendment has anything to say about the dischargeability of one of these debts. The Supreme Court has said before that there's no right to a bankruptcy discharge. So most of the action is about liability, um, not these carry-on effects. So, uh, you know, I do think that Section 523, there have been a lot of people writing about how it could be changed and reformed. Most of the the thinking is in other pieces of it. Um, But it certainly does limit the kind of fresh start that someone could get in a bankruptcy. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking about, you know, I'm a journalist, and so the First Amendment and, and defamation is something that I deal with all the time. Uh, unfortunately, I, I have not ever been sued for defamation, and I don't plan on being sued for defamation. But I guess I'm I'm thinking of a scenario here where a public official uh, files a suit against a journalist or a journalism outlet, and that journalist or journalism outlet has to settle the case because the risks of losing are so high that there's just no way they can actually fight for their own First Amendment rights. Um, Is that, you know, I mean, that's sort of a hypothetical, but is that something that could realistically happen? I mean, I think it could. I think people should, I think people take liability seriously. Very few people think about bankruptcy before it's happening to them. Um, and so as a bankruptcy professional, we're, we're always thinking, um, you know, we're sometimes accused of being great fun at cocktail parties because we're always thinking about doom and gloom. You guys in divorce attorneys. No one <laughs> right, wants to right, think right. about divorce attorneys until they need one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, but, you know, y- you need people to be able to wor- work this stuff out and a fresh start is important. I guess I do take that risk seriously. I think what we need in this space are rules that establish the gating for these kinds of lawsuits. So New York Times versus Sullivan sets this rule that you got to have actual malice. So if a public official sues you um, on the complaint, there should be some allegation that somehow they know the journalist was acting with actual malice. And if they don't say that, the lawsuit should be dismissed. Um, There's also litigation that tries to prevent lawsuits that are brought for chilling purposes. Those statutes are called anti-slap statutes. It's an acronym for strategic litigation against public participation. So those things all seem very, very sensible to me. If I were a defendant, what I would want to know at the beginning of the case is, look, am I being sued because I was trying to hurt someone? Or am I being sued for making a mistake? And if you can figure out which one it is, then you can think a little bit more clearly about whether you'd want to settle. If you're being sued for actually trying to hurt someone, then I think your lawyers ought to sit you down and say, look, not only we, you know, we might win, we might lose, but if we lose, um, this debt's going to live with you because you can't get out of it through bankruptcy. If it's just for a mistake, um, then you probably are going to be able to get out of it um, in bankruptcy as well. So any sort of front-end rules about defamation law that make that distinction clear I think would be helpful from a bankruptcy perspective. That's really fascinating. All right. Well, uh, that was Christopher Hampson with the University of Florida talking about bankruptcy and defamation. Thank you uh, so much for talking. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter. And our executive producer 
is Josh Block. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Kimberly Robinson. I'm Greg Store, And I'm Lydia Wheeler. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the yachts, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.